Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games, and specifically, playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today is Mordai. Good evening, and thank you for joining tonight's adventure. We are both moderators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help you bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have running a play-by-post game and play-by-post combat, both of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. The first topic on the agenda is running a play-by-post game. Now, you've found players, you've advertised successfully, and it's time to actually run the game. So, what are the steps for that? We're going to talk about improvising, we're going to talk about rolling dice, actual gameplay, and what to do if a game stalls. So, the first thing you should think about when you are running a play-by-post game is that no GM plan ever survives contact with the players. So you have to be ready to improvise. There's a couple different ways you can go about improvising. Mordai, do you have any thoughts on improvising? Like, how do you react to your players and make it more flexible? Well, one of the big advantages of the play-by-post format is that there's a lot of time between actions. So even if the players threw you a complete curveball from left field, you're able to react because you have a day, maybe two days, maybe three days, to sit down and really think, How am I going to change my entire adventure based on what that player just did? An excellent point. Play-by-post offers the advantage of being able to think about it for basically as long as you need to before moving on with what's next. So to get from one plot point to the next, you have to be prepared to change what's happening on the fly. So, okay, just as an example, say your players go into a dungeon and they realize, now nah, we don't actually want to do this dungeon. But you have the entire dungeon laid out and ready. And then they say, now nah, we're just not going to do that. And then they move on. So now you have to rewrite the entire adventure around them skipping the dungeon. And the best thing to do, in my opinion, is use your DM notes first. So you have to reference what the next plot point is, and then figure out what happens in the middle there between skipping the dungeon and the next plot point. A big tip to that is to start by outlining the overarching plot. If it's only going to be a dungeon crawl, really you need to set your players up with that expectation to begin with. But if the dungeon is a piece of the pie, then set up the rest of the pie just in an outline form so that you know where you expect them to go next, what's around it, what are their options. Exactly, and this is why we dedicated an entire episode to planning a game so that we could help people prepare for the eventuality of players coming in and completely ruining everything by going off the beaten path. And all this is not to say that we would dissuade you from running a pre-generated campaign or an existing module, but setting up the players with the expectation of that is critical at the outset so that they know there really isn't very much outside of the pre-programmed rails. Absolutely. So with a pre-written adventure, it's a lot easier to kind of force your players to do what you want them to do and not give them as much breathing room. And the same is true for open world games. 
with open world games or sandbox games as they're commonly called, it's very easy for your players to go anywhere and do anything. So you have to be ready for basically every eventuality and be entirely reactive to them. If the players are driving the plot, how is that any different from having a pre-written plot? Not particularly. The advantage of the pre-written plot is it's going to have many, many specific details about particular locations or people, while a sandbox, as uh, I'm tend to run, you need to have few details about a great many options so that the players can move around freely within the box and you can add details to the individual locations on the fly as you need them. Absolutely. I've only run one sandbox game in the past, and it was entirely player-driven. It was literally, here's a world, go do whatever you feel like. And having a breadth of information rather than depth helped me immensely in being able to adapt all those different players to different settings and different plot hooks, more or less. Yeah, we did a previous episode on player selection and advertisement, but being clear that it's open world and player-driven is an important level of expectation to set at the beginning. Otherwise, you can get players who are very interested in being reactive to whatever plot hooks are in the pre-generated adventure, and they end up sitting around in an open world not knowing exactly what to do because there's so many options. Absolutely. So even in that sort type of setting, you still want to give them some sort of direction, whether it's, hey, there's this big bad evil guy. How do you go about defeating him? Or, hey, there's a place you can go. Do you want to go there? Or those types of options. Even if it's the bare minimum of A or B, then you're at least giving them something to work with rather than, I don't know what to do. Tiffany puts it correctly that you need lots of shiny plot hooks out there to dangle in front of them so that they can pick one. And hopefully they're motivated enough to at least pick one because otherwise you need to have rocks fall. I think at that point you may have selected a player that might not work for your style of game if they're so indecisive that they can't even grab a plot hook that you've given them. Yeah, play-by-post certainly uh, encourages a level of improvisation that's greater than what you can accomplish at a tabletop. I've even run games completely by the seat of my pants having only a basic premise and a few players who are interested in that premise, and we put it together on the fly. And that actually works out pretty well, because as I said before, you have plenty of time to think about what happens next, because it doesn't have to happen right away. So the unspeakable asks, what happens when players create plot hooks that were not already there? And that's kind of the whole point of being able to improvise or come up with something on the fly. If a player says, oh, you've given me XYZ options, I'm going to choose A, then you have to be able to adjust everything to fit that new direction that they're going in. Otherwise, if you can't do that, then you're basically taking away the player choice and taking away the interaction that you would have had by having something that they're actually motivated to do. I pat that player on the back and give them bonus experience because they just made the game more interesting on their own, which made my job easier. That is absolutely true. Anytime the players can help out the DM and give them a direction, especially in a sandbox-type setting, then you're doing a huge service to the DM, who may, at that point, be trying to come up with everything by themselves. Now, there is a limit, I think, to the amount of seat-of-the-pants flying that you can do. If you haven't planned out the rough introduction to the adventure and how the players will 
start to find some of those plot hooks, you can end up floundering with players wondering, what can I do, and you not giving them anything to look at. All right, so the next part of running a game is actually rolling the dice. And this is probably the easiest thing to do at an actual tabletop, but one of the hardest things to do on play-by-post, just because there's so many different rules and options and those types of things. But thankfully, on Mythweavers, we have such a hugely powerful tool in the dice roller that I have not seen anywhere else. I don't I don't know of any other website that has the powerful dice roller that Mythweavers does. Have have you seen anything like that, Mordai? Nope. In the two or three options that I've seen, they've all been very limited other than Mythweavers. That's why I settled here eight years ago. Tiffany Cordham mentions that it's a shame it can't handle cards, and actually I think it can. I think there is a system that lets you do cards on Mythweavers. I have not used it personally, but I'm pretty sure that was added a little while ago. Not quite. There are some options out there for doing it, but all of them are relatively limited. The downside to cards is it's a stateful system where you have to keep knowledge of what's in the deck, what's been drawn, who has what. It's a very complicated problem. Yep. If anyone has taken perhaps a computer science class, one of the problems you might be presented with is do a deck of cards, shuffle it, see what cards are drawn, etc., etc. And that does end up being a terribly complicated program in the end. So, with Mythweavers being a play-by-post format, rolling dice can be a bit of a chore, even with such a powerful dice roller. And there's a lot of different ways that I've seen different Dungeon Masters handle rolling dice, and they range from, I'll tell you when you need to roll dice, all the way up to just roll, and we'll figure it out afterwards if you needed it or not. I personally take the stance of just roll, and if it's not needed, whatever, we'll we'll deal with it, or we'll just ignore it. But if you don't roll, and a roll was needed, then I'll just let you know, and we'll go from there. It's It's a, you want to kind of guess when you might need to roll, and then that just smooths everything out for the entire game so that you're not sitting there going, hey, DM, do I need to roll for this? Or, hey, DM, do I need to roll for this? Agree, Nathan. In principle, putting things in the hands of the players and letting them work quickly is to your advantage in every case. Absolutely. And ultimately, what you want when you're running a game on Mythweavers is you want to engage the players and keep them there so that it ultimately doesn't die. And all of the strategies that we're kind of talking about are ways of keeping your players interested in the game and not constantly waiting on the DM to tell them what to do. Now, there are some particular dice that I tend to want to roll myself, and I set that expectation for my players up front. They tend to be the ones where the players shouldn't know what the answer is, the ones that I always roll behind my screen and don't let them see. Those I will insist on rolling and actively dissuade them from rolling those type of dice randomly in every post just because it's not necessary. So the types of things that Mordai is talking about is like if, for example, you need a player to roll perception, but you don't want everyone else to know that someone has noticed something. And Mythweavers is actually really good at handling this with private tags and private threads. But if you want to control information you can kind of tell your players up front that, hey, don't worry about these certain roles. I'll roll them for you, and I'll tell you what happens when it's necessary. And that can create a certain level of drama or tension 
that can also keep your players invested in the game. So another system that I don't think very many people are aware of, but exists and can be extremely powerful and useful, is the sheet roll and sheet dice tags. I'll ask chat, how many of you have actually used those? Tiffany says, nope. Wandering Bishop says, term doesn't ring a bell. Mordai says, all the time. Wandering Bishop, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yep, Wandering Bishop asks, oh wait, is that when you roll a skill complete with all modifiers directly from your character sheet? And yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. And this particular system, I don't believe it works for every game system, but I know for sure it works for most of the Dungeons & Dragons ones, Pathfinder, and I'm I'm almost certainly missing a few. But the way it works is you use either sheet roll or sheet dice BB code tags, and the site automatically figures out what skill or ability or attack you're trying to roll and pulls in all of your information for you. It pulls in your attack bonus, your damage, your damage bonus, all of those things together. And Jojo Lager mentions that it's a cool trick, but if there are variable modifiers to track, it stops playing nice. And that is true. Sometimes you do have to manually roll. But I think most of the time, if there's a conditional modifier, you would need to roll specifically for that anyway. There is the ability to add a single modifier on the fly. I'll write the code in the chat here, but it, it is a capability that the system has, so you can change it as you need it. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for reminding me, because I, I specifically brushed up on my sheet roll and sheet dice tags before this episode, and I remember seeing that, yes, you can have specific modifiers depending on if things are different or not. And Mordai is going to link the code, but I'm also going to link the help article that specifically describes how this works. And both of the, both the code and the link to the help page will be available for those of you listening to the recording in the forum post in the relevant links section. Now it is worth noting that to use this capability, the player must link their sheet to the game, which means A, they have to have their sheet located on Mythweavers and B, they have to understand how to use that linking system, which isn't too complicated. And there's help in the help text that Nathan has just posted. Yep. So you have to make use of that system that allows you to link a specific character sheet to a game before you can even consider using sheet dice. I actually tried doing it on the try BB code page and it wouldn't work at all because it wasn't in a game forum. All right. So the next part of running a game on Mythweavers is actual gameplay. So there's a lot of things that can happen when you're actually playing the game that can slow your game down, speed it up, kind of want to be able to set the pace for your game depending on how you expect things to go. So if you need the game to go faster, first of all, you want to set that expectation right up front and say, okay, I need everybody to post at least once a day. And you might not get as many pl potential players when you do that, but at least everybody's on the same page when the game actually starts that, okay, this is game is going to move fairly quickly as one post per day is pretty quick for play-by-post standards. Or if you go with a little bit slower, say maybe two posts a week or something like that, then you want to be able to control that as well. So I've noticed that when you look at role-playing, that is actually being in character, talking to one another, character building, world building, those types of things. That is the easiest part of myth of a game on Mythweavers. And 
those types of posts can come quickly and in rapid succession because you don't have to worry about rules, you don't have to worry about mechanics. Whereas if you're rolling dice, things start to slow down because now you're rolling a dice, you're waiting for the DM to come back and give you more information, and then you either go back and edit your post or make another post, and that process can slow down a game immensely. Absolutely. Being in character is one of the biggest benefits of the play-by-post format. When you're not staring at another person who's munching Cheetos, it's a lot easier to imagine them as that gruff dwarf or that uh, highfalutin elf or the heavily modified cyborg in that Shadowrun game than uh, when you're online, you can imagine them or you have a picture of them or you have their text description. It works well. Jimmy asks, what if they're playing a Cheeto-munching hacker in that Shadowrun game? Well, that's easy for me to imagine because I went to college and I had friends just like that. I'm there with you. I have friends that are still like that, actually. (laughs) A big difference between systems really comes into effect as to whether role-playing with the dice is easy or hard on Mythweavers. If you have a system that requires a lot of interrupts and a lot of back-and-forth interaction, and I think 7th C first generation or D&D 4th edition or even D&D 3.5 edition is good examples, if you can get in the way of someone else's action and stop the flow, uh, then that requires another back-and-forth, and the round just takes longer and longer to finish. Absolutely. The, the more you can minimize the back and forth between the DM and the players. And I'm not saying that you don't want, as a DM, you don't want to post frequently because you do, but the less they rely on you to move things forward, the better and smoother your game is going to go. So you want to be able to give your players a level of freedom that allows you to, when things slow down, say, Hey, are you waiting on me? Did I miss something? Is something going on? And everybody's human. We miss things. It happens. So being able to talk to your players and say, oh no, what did I miss? Did I forget something? Tell me what I did wrong can help keep the game going. And Chimi points out, or try to get on some kind of instant communication platform so you can ask quick questions while writing your post. And that is a brilliant idea. And right now, go figure, we're using Discord, which is a plug for the Mythweavers Discord server. Come check it out. It's awesome. And that is an extremely useful tool if you need to get in touch with your DM or other players very quickly and ask just, like, a little tiny question, all in favor of keeping things moving. Now, the downside is we are also a global platform. There are players across the world for me right now in several of my games. We can't necessarily line up our playtime, but an instant message is something they can post to me that I can get back to asynchronously as soon as I'm available, and that cuts down on the delay time of them posting and me posting and them waiting for me posting and me waiting for them posting. Yep, and even if you're not using Discord, there are plenty of platforms out there that you can still use. You can use Skype or AIM or... I think AIM still exists, right? <laughs> well, Skype, I mean, it's not great for voice, but it, it were, it's a functional instant messaging client. IRC is definitely still around, or I'm trying to think of others. Uh, Mr. Andrew J says ICQ. I'm not familiar with that one, but apparently that's a thing. Well, yeah, I mean, we could use Telnet Talk as well, but I wouldn't suggest it. So, anyway, there are... 
additional tools that you can use that will allow you to speed up your game outside of Mythweavers while still being able to have a cohesive and active game on the site. And this is what I'm doing with my games right now. I have a, a separate Discord server set aside just for my games, and people will ping me with a question, and I'll get to it within five minutes, or, you know, if I'm busy, it might take a couple hours, but that's still faster than one day I post, two days later the player posts, the next day I post, the next day they post. It cuts those interactions that would take a week or more down to maybe a day, two at the most, potentially. And it is important to point out that the whole point of the play-by-post format is to maintain that level of asynchronous play where we don't all have to be up at the same time in the same place, whether physically or virtually. So we don't want to give up that advantage. But all of these tools are options for you to speed up the time lag that sometimes happens when you don't have someone in your face asking for your action. Absolutely, and part of this can help be avoided if you set that expectation early with your players and say, hey, I expect a post from you every day. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an in-character post, unless that's what you want, but at least a post to keep things moving along, either out of character or in character. And hybrid games definitely provide that opportunity to use tools like the Discord server or Roll20 to make those interactions quick when you need to. Like if you need to play through a scene that's only involving three of the characters and the other four or five are going to be sitting around on their hands watching the narration, blasting that through on Discord or Skype or what have you can uh, speed up the time where you get all of the players back engaged in the game. Absolutely. Unfortunately, even with all of these tools, it's still possible for a game to stall out. A game can just lose momentum, players get bored, or they go off on a tangent that turns out to be completely derailing and off-topic. So, as we're a fan of saying on the podcast, you can always just blow something up. And maybe not literally blow something up, but maybe a big bad villain shows up or something along those lines. It might not guarantee that your game will come back to life, but it is a good way to breathe some new life into a game that's either been around for a while or might be slowing down when maybe you think it shouldn't be. When in doubt, set something on fire. Exactly, exactly. Another thing you can do if your game starts to stall out is integrate the players more. I think something that happens to a lot of games is players feel like they're not getting enough of the spotlight or they're not feeling as invested in the story as they thought they would. So you can always just shine a spotlight on them or, you know, get a couple plot hooks from your characters. If And we talked about this in the recruiting episode. If your players have provided you with good plot hooks, you can use those to draw them back into the game and be like, oh, suddenly this game is about something that actually matters to my character and therefore to me. And now I'm going to get invested back into this game. And along those same lines, it's it's important to prod your players. I'm always a fan of setting a fixed interval at the beginning of the game. If I haven't heard from you in three days or two days or one day, depending on how fast I want the game to go, I'm going to take your action for you or have one of the other players do it, and we're going to keep moving along because we can't sit and wait. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about setting a set interval to poke or prod my players, but 
that's brilliant, and I should have thought of it, and I'm totally going to steal it now. <laughs> that's what friends are for. All right, and the last thing we have to talk about for running a game before we move on to play-by-post combat, which I'm really excited to talk about, is I want to talk a little bit about the plot of a game and how that can affect running your game as a whole. So the plot of a game, it's kind of like the plot of anything else, a movie or a play or a novel. You you can follow a couple different structures for the plot of your game, be it the three-act structure or the hero's adventure or hero's journey, I think it's called. And especially with pre-written adventures, there's a very strict structure that that plot follows. And when you have it in play-by-post, you have to realize play-by-post is slow. Like, I hate to say it because I love play-by-post, but it is a slow format. It takes a long time to get a lot of things done. It can take several months for players to even level up. So you have to find a way to either condense that very strict plot structure or encourage your players to get through things quickly so that you can get to those milestones that make the game more interesting. Yeah, it's a a difficult hurdle to get over for people who are new to the play-by-post format. I've had a number of friends from my tabletop days come and try and join, and many of them have just found that, well, they can't quite handle the fact that it takes a long time to get from one town to the next. Something that we would narrate over the course of five minutes at the tabletop could take a couple of weeks. But the good thing is that the players who get invested in their characters who stick with it tend to stick around for a long time. My longest running game is running on almost eight years now, and I still have several of the original players. It's great. Absolutely, and that's kind of why we are talking about getting your players invested so much, is when you find that group of invested characters or players who really care about the plot and really care about the story that you're telling, then you have a successful game that can last eight years. Or I think the longest-running game on Mythweavers is going on ten no, that can't be right because the, the site was only was only founded in 2007. Is it that eight-year game, Mordai? Oh, no, no. There are definitely games from the 2007 era that predate mine. Ithmar, I think, is probably still running one that was ported over from the previous server. Okay, so ten years or more, potentially, if it came from before the new server. So Tiffany Corda nailed it on the head. You've got to really love your plot, especially if you want it to keep running and get anywhere with the story. It could potentially be running for years or decades in this case. So you have to really find people who will stay invested with you for that long. And as you pointed out earlier, a big chunk of that investment is having a plot that fills in their characters' uh, wants and needs. Absolutely. So even with a pre-written adventure, most of them, at least nowadays, give you options to bring your characters into the story as if they were supposed to be there, not just some random group of adventurers that showed up and said, hey, let's do this adventure. Instead, it helps make them feel like they're actually living, breathing characters inside this story, even in a very long plot, such as a pre-written game, which in Mythweaver's terms could take a decade or more to even complete. And that level of expectation, I think, is important to set at the outset. Frequently, people come in with grand aspirations of running a level 1 to level 20 campaign in D&D 3.5. That 
may be physically impossible for the average play-by-poster to actually accomplish in a reasonable lifetime. I actually don't know of any game that has successfully done that. And if there is a game out there that's done that, please prove me wrong because I will be blown away by it. An important aspect to to a long-running plot is to not focus on the small stuff. Occasionally, even I have a tendency to narrate second by second, day by day, and not realize that, you know, the next important thing that happens is when they get to a town that's two weeks away. I almost killed my first game off of walking the group from the first town to the next town. I tried to give a set interval for how long that time should take and how much conversation I would expect, and the players weren't invested, so they got bored. That was on me, and I learned my lesson, and I realize now that if there's really not anything interesting there, just ask the players in the out-of-character chat, hey, can we just jump ahead to the next thing? Usually they'll say, sure, that'd be great. Tiffany Corda mentions, I figure borrowing TV-style editing ideas is a good thing. And yes, that's pretty much exactly what you want to do in a play-by-post game. You want to be able to freely cut between the interesting bits. And, I mean, any TV show you watch, they're not going to show you every minute of every day of every week of a group of people going from one place to another. They're going to show you, okay, we're getting on the plane. Okay, we're getting off the plane. And that's exactly what you want to do in play-by-post. You want to be able to cut and hack and slash your plot so that you get from one place to another and keep things interesting the entire time. My Stargate game group is taking that to an art form level of whenever we do a scene cut over in the out-of-character channel, they start postulating fake infomercials or other random TV products that you would see as you were going from that first segment to the next segment in the TV show. It's actually pretty hilarious. That is fantastic. All right. I think that pretty much wraps up everything we have about running a game. We might revisit that topic at a later date when perhaps Colin and Alejandro and everybody can rejoin us. But I think that's pretty well covers it for the moment. So the next topic is play-by-post combat. And combat's awesome. I mean... Let's be honest here. Combat is probably one of the best things that can happen in a game. You get to be all heroic and slay monsters and kill dragons. And yeah, who doesn't want to do that? Unfortunately, on play by post, combat is one of the number one is probably in the top three or four things that kills a game. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with dice rolls being such a nightmare on play by post. Nightmare may be a little bit strong, but it's certainly one of those things that has to be managed correctly. And combat doesn't always mean that you have to be swishing your sword around or slinging spells at each other or hacking into the megacorps network with your super deck. There can also be all sorts of social combat or intrigue or or stealth-type actions that uh, demand that uh, you're competing against each other or against the clock or against the environment. Uh, And that's still a form of combat when it comes to gaming. Absolutely. Any of those core conflicts that you see in stories, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus self, etc., those can all be considered quote-unquote combat, especially in systems like Fate or Dresden Files or those types of systems where it's very heavily character and story-focused rather than 
sword slashing focused. Going into the actual mechanics of a combat, one of the first things you run across is the simple initiative roll, which at the tabletop, everyone gets out their favorite dice and they roll them all simultaneously and they stare at the numbers and then they point at each other and know who goes first, who goes second, who goes third. And occasionally the GM jumps in and says, okay, and one of your opponents goes now. That can take a lot of time when you need that many posts from that many people on a play-by-post game. Absolutely. So there's a lot of different strategies you can use to either cut that down or get rid of it entirely. Tiffany Corda mentioned, see, I don't bother with initiative anymore. And I agree with you. On play-by-post, initiative is kind of a antiquated thing because we found better ways to do what we want to do, whether it's oh, just post in whatever order, or have the players post in whatever order, and then and then have the DM come in and write the results of everything, and then do it all again, have the players post another round, and just let the DM figure out everything else. Or you can do, like, initiative groups where you have the players are all in one group, and they might use the highest initiative out of the entire group, and then the monsters are in a separate group, that again use the highest initiative, and then the players and DM go back and forth in a similar style to that first method, but at least then you retain the structure of, okay, well, in an initiative order, the players go first or the players go second, and then the monsters vice versa. And again, a lot of this is driven based on how much you want to adjust the game and your gaming style to fit the play-by-post format. Many of the systems are very interrupt-driven, where you have to know in exact order who did what, and, oh, no, wait, player number three, stop, because player number two has an action that's going to trump yours, and he declared it just before you did yours. So you have to have a certain ability for the players to accept that either I can't build this complicated interrupt-driven mechanic, or I have to fudge a little bit and not take the maximum advantage of every possible opportunity uh, in order to keep the game moving at a reasonable pace. Absolutely, and that's a that's a trade-off between role-play, actual in-character stuff, versus role-play, the actual rolling of dice. So you kind of have to figure, well, I could make my character super optimized so that they can do all these different things, or in the interest of keeping the game healthy... I can make my character super interesting. And you those are not necessarily exclusive to one another. You can meld those ideas together. But in my experience, the far more successful characters, even in combat, are the ones that are more interesting rather than the ones that are more optimized. Yes, you might be able to kill a whole group of dragons with one spell if you're super optimized, but who cares if out of a 10-year-long game, only a tiny fraction of that is actually spent in combat. The rest is all about how interesting your character is in moving the story forward. And there has to be a gentle person's agreement among the, the group that the GM is not going to abuse the those limitations that he's put on the players in the name of the game moving forward and do the, the same thing with the, with the opponents that he's playing so that it's a level playing field. That will definitely kill a game very quickly, especially in combat, when your players realized, oh crap, we're playing interesting characters, not optimized characters, and here comes the big bad Grok the Dwarf Stomper, and he's super optimized, and he's just going to smush our face in. 
you know, the game's a journey, not a destination. So the important part is to have fun along the way rather than just winning. Absolutely. But the expectation is for your players to eventually succeed. Maybe not against Grok the Dwarf Stomper, but they will succeed against pretty much everything else. And once the battle is over, it can be really helpful to take the last maybe round one round in terms of D&D and just make it like a super awesome montage of your players just being completely amazing at whatever they're doing. Makes your players feel good, and it skips that whole last round where the battle is tactically won, but it just technically needs to be finished. Absolutely. I, I'm even in favor of taking that a step further, and once you've reached that tipping point where there's there's no going back, the encounter is won. In an early game, that may be glitter-dusting the group of goblins, and now none of them can see your players. There really is no point in rolling 1d20 plus 1 16 times because a third of them miss and repeat ad nauseum until you finally take your opponent down. Absolutely. So as a DM, you have to be aware of how balanced your encounters are. And you have to understand that when the balance shifts in the favor of the players, the battle is effectively over. And there's nothing the mon- well, there usually isn't anything the monsters can do to tip it back in their favor. Unless that's kind of what you're going for. And you want to have that kind of swingy back and forth mechanic where it's like, oh, we're going to win. Oh, no, we're going to lose. Oh, yes, we're going to win. The Wandering Bishop points out a good point that it's easy to remember that your opponents can actually surrender or do something other than fight to the absolute death when you're not staring your players with their bloodlust in their eyes, ready to roll the dice and eviscerate the six poor hobgoblins that are cowering before them. No, 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 we give up. And that actually turns into a potential plot hook in the future. Those six hobgoblins might run away, and then they show up later in the story, which keeps your players invested, and they go, oh, I remember these guys, and now they're these badasses, for lack of a better term, and the player's like, oh, crap, now we gotta we gotta step up our game. And that helps keep your players invested as well, while also making combat easier to wrap up and get through. Now, we're going to go on for a little bit longer here about combat and how to make it work. But I'm a big fan of limiting combats to where they're meaningful to the story. That's not to say that I don't have any combats in my games, but I'm sure that my players will recognize that they're a lot fewer than they might expect in some other games. And that's on purpose, because... If you don't make the the combats meaningful, then you can get a lot of that dragging action of, why am I fighting this guy again? Oh, yeah, because it was a random encounter on the road from town A to town B. Boring. Exactly. Those types of little details are things that you can just kind of gloss over, especially with pre-written adventures, because they love to do random encounters in pre-written adventures. So you gloss over those little tiny details, that little 100 XP battle, and just move on with the actually important parts of the story. But don't forget to award that experience because that pre-generated adventure is expecting that they're going to have it by the time they get to point B. Wandering Bishop says there's no need to pad the one shot out to three hours, and that's basically what we're talking about. You don't need to have every single encounter that 
the book tells you to. Especially, I've noticed with D&D 5th edition, a lot of campaigns now are written with milestone experience. So you don't level up with each combat. You level up when it's convenient for the story. So those tiny little details get even easier to gloss over. So it's like, oh, we don't need to do this combat. They'll level up when they're supposed to anyway, even if we don't do it. And I've become a huge fan of that system, and I actually am using it in pretty much all of my games currently. All right, so the fact of the matter is, combat is more or less inevitable, especially in D&D or Pathfinder or those types of systems, because a lot of their core mechanics are focused on combat. So those systems in particular use maps, and maps are awesome, they're beautiful, most of the time, and incredibly useful for tactical combat. But on Mythweavers, are, are they really that useful? In a word, no. That's very true. They're definitely not required for play-by-post. And even though there are a ton of very useful map creators out there, Mythweavers itself even has some of those tools in the Dungeons & Caves generator and the community supporter map tool, but their actual, and then other websites even can provide those same features, Roll20, Fantasy Grounds. I mean, you can Google D&D Map Maker, and you'll find a 1,000 hits within 30 seconds. No problem. So it is important to convey the key aspects of what would be on that map. Where are the exits? Where are the enemies? What obstacles might there be in between you and them or between you and your escape route? But you don't necessarily have to put a whole lot of detail into making the map pretty such that you could throw miniatures on it. Absolutely. Most of the time I use maps as a visual reference just because I have a hard time visualizing spaces unless I can actually see it. So the only times I use maps nowadays is to just show players, okay, this is what this area looks like. And don't worry too much about the the grid or whatever in actual combat. And there are simple tools that, that can make that reasonably easy. Everyone has access to Google Sheets nowadays, and all you have to do is set all those cells to be square in shape and put a letter in each of them corresponding to each character and NPC, and you've got a map. Exactly. And Google Sheets actually has the advantage of letting your players interact with the map itself. And again, this whole player engagement thing that we keep riffing on today, it makes it so that the map isn't just a static image that they look at, see, okay, I'm here, the enemy's there, whatever. Now they have to think about, okay, well, now I have to think about moving my character. And that can help make combat more interesting too. So you don't have to have a map, but if you have one of those interactive maps, it can really help keep your players engaged through the slog of combat. So very quickly, I'll just throw out a couple more sites that a little bit of research turned up for map making that I happen to like, and some are paid, some are free, but all of the links to all of these map tools will be in the relevant links section of the forum post. And the other three that I want to mention are Ye Old Map Maker, Campaign Cartographer, and Dungeon Painter. Those were the three that stood out to me when I went on Google and looked at this. And like I said, there are seriously thousands of results out there for making maps. 
But those are kind of the three that stood out. And links will be in the relevant links section for those. And I will also go ahead and post those links here in the Discord chat. To me, it's important to note that making maps is one of those GM tasks that sounds really cool, but you have to balance how much time you have available with how much impact you actually get from having the map. I've spent a lot of time creating very detailed maps for encounters that never happened. Yep, and that goes back to that whole improvisation thing. You have to be prepared for the eventuality that some of the prep work you do might not ever get used, unfortunately. My maps are beautiful, I swear. (laughs) All right, and the last thing I want to talk about before we move on to the game of the week and the Q&A session is character death. Now, it's not a very happy topic, but sometimes characters die. It happens to all of us. I think pretty much everyone can tell a story about when one of their characters died. And on play-by-post, it's not quite as easy as saying, okay, just whip out another character sheet, make another character, and we'll keep going. So we have to get a little creative with how we handle character death. And one system that I use that I'm really, really in love with is the exhaustion system. And this isn't specific to any particular game. It can just be used on play-by-post in general. But basically, if a player or if a character would die or be defeated, instead they get exhaustion and they are out of combat. And in D&D, I'll use a D&D example, they take a long rest and then they wake up and they have a scar on their body somewhere. And that allows them to continue playing the same character, but they're still defeated or they quote-unquote died. There's a similar mechanic in 7th C where typically the narrative is framed around not whether or not the, the protagonists succeed but how well they succeed is that as you take longer and longer to succeed or the tide of the, the tide of the battle turns against you, there are more negative consequences to the storyline that occur because of your lack of success. Jojo Lagger mentions that that is the Pokemon style of defeat. And yeah, that actually is a very good way to sum it up. All right. I think it is about time we moved on to the game of the week for this week. This week's game of the week is Dwarf Fortress Zero Thal, which in Dwarven roughly translates to the Fire Deeps. Zero Thal is by Lead Glance and is a Pathfinder game set in Galarian. It is, as Lead Lead Glance describes it, a sandboxy dungeon crawl with elements of survival horror or mystery investigation. Eventually, the game will transition to a subtle management style of game similar to Kingmaker. This game really goes to show that you can pull inspiration from anything for a tabletop game, as this game is inspired by the game Dwarf Fortress. If you're not familiar with that game, it's basically an extremely in-depth management video game about a group of dwarves trying to make a living in a new area. Zero Thal focuses on what happens when you fail in that game, and the players of this game will be exploring the ruins of a failed fortress with the intent of restoring it to its former glory. Dwarf Fortress Zero Thal's application process is set to close on June 23rd, so get those applications in quickly. 
As always, for those of you listening to the recording, the link to that game will be in the relevant links section of the forum post. I tell you what, reading those scripts is a lot harder than it sounds. <laughs> uh, the unspeakable, I do not believe it was overrun with feral cats. All right, and with that, we come to everybody's favorite section of the show, the question and answer segment. So, we'll answer a bunch of questions, and we'll go from there. So, ask your questions. They can be about anything. Mythweavers, they can be about games in general, they can be anything we talked about today. So yeah, bring them on. Bring on the questions. Alright, that guy too asks, how exactly do you get started with building a homebrew campaign world? Start small. So, that's my first piece of advice. Start small. Because... As someone who has designed a game world that is physically 50% larger than Earth, has, I think, 25% more land than Earth, and about 10% more countries, you need to be able to start with one idea and flesh that idea out fully before you go on to these big, huge, expansive worlds that people use generally. So start with, say, a country. Or start with a group of people and focus on their story and their idea first. Once you've figured out their story, you can figure out how the rest of the pieces around them start to fit together. And through those pieces, you'll eventually come to a setting that feels cohesive and can incorporate pretty much any adventure you want it to. I hope that answers the question. I think I got a little deep there, maybe. I'm a big fan of uh, The Order of the Stick, and Rich Berlew, who is the author illustrator there, also wrote a number of gaming articles, and I'm going to link to the first one here. Uh, they're posted over on his website, Giant in the Playground, and it goes through his methodology for creating a game world, which is pretty much the same methodology that I go about, which is you have to start by thinking... What am I trying to accomplish with this world? Why am I building something new instead of something that already exists out there? Once you've got that general idea down, then you start putting some points down on your big map of the world. There's a place here, there's a place there, there's a place there. And then, as Nathan says, develop some of the details there and determine the interactions between them. It's really not that much different than writing a novel now while I think about it. And I could link to the uh, novel-generating methods that the National Novel Writers Month uh, uses as uh, preparatory exercises, too. That wouldn't be a bad idea to throw out there. Absolutely. And Morda, I mentioned that it's a bit like writing a novel, and that's absolutely right. I'll recommend Writing Excuses, which is another podcast that focuses on writing novels, and they have several episodes dedicated to world building. And one of the people on that podcast is Brandon Sanderson, and he is one of the most well-known fantasy writers of today. And he goes in-depth on his process for designing worlds, and not necessarily campaign worlds, but worlds nonetheless. And that information I have found to be extremely helpful. All right, Tiffany Corda asks, how do you handle games with Metaplot on Mythweavers? Hmm, that's a good one. Well, I think part of it comes down to what you define as Metaplot, because there are different people who use that term to mean different things. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit, Tiffany, and we can go on from there. In the meantime, 
Wandering Bishop asks, have you ever run games where the PCs controlled multiple characters? How did they turn out? I personally have not done this. I can't recall ever having seen it on Mythweavers, but I'm not sure how that would go either. It's a very interesting idea. Well, technically every game, at least one player is controlling multiple characters because that's the, the game master's role is to play all the characters that the other players aren't playing. But there are definitely times where I've had one person play multiple characters. It tends to devolve, unfortunately, because typically those players aren't GMs. They're not used to running multiple characters uh, within the same setting. So they tend to favor one of the characters over another. Uh, And that doesn't lend itself well to good storytelling. It could work in a very combat-heavy game, uh, where one is a uh, a lead character and the other one is a uh, a henchman of some sort. But in a, a story-driven game, I find it doesn't necessarily help to break a player's focus among multiple characters. I will defer to Mordai's knowledge on this one. Okay, and Tiffany Corda has expounded a bit for us. They say, I guess, stuff like Seventh Sea or Vampire, where big changes can happen in the background. And... Now I understand the question, so thank you. So any game can have a quote-unquote meta plot or an overarching story that's happening outside of what the players are doing, and not just not necessarily for play-by-post games, but for stories in general. I feel like those make a more interesting story because you have the characters, and then they do something, and that influences how the overarching or quote-unquote hidden story is going, and then you have something happen because of a previous action, and that can be really, really good for your players to get into it and suddenly realize, oh, what we're doing actually matters. Let's This game is actually important now, and it's really cool when that happens. Yeah, having having the world continue to go on in the background, I believe, is an essential element of any long-running game, uh, particularly of the sandbox or open-world variety. If there aren't things going on, then the players can sometimes tend to feel like they're in a video game, uh, and that's not the type of story that we're necessarily trying to build when we're in a play-by-post medium. It's easy to say, oh, the shopkeepers just stay in their shops and uh, live there. It's like back when you're in elementary school and you're convinced that your teachers lived in the closet in their classroom because you didn't see them as a real person. They only existed in that context. All of the characters in your play-by-post game exist, at least in the GM's mind, outside of the context of where the players are. And it's important to remind the players of that fact so that they treat them uh, with a certain level of uh, realism. All right. Keep bringing on the questions. We have time for a few more. And Wandering Bishop asks, what are some interesting games of the hack this rule system into a different genre variety that you've seen? I like Shadowrun a lot for that because it's good for handling not only cyberpunk, but a while back, I ran a, it's a Shadowrun in space game, and I found that all of the skills and the rules and all of those things that Shadowrun was capable of 
fit a true sci-fi setting extremely well. So, you know, you've got computers, you've got hacking, you've got art, you've got gunnery for the really big guns. You've got the social skills of a captain for a starship. And that was a pretty flawless transition from Shadowrun, this cyberpunk dystopian setting to this spacefaring adventure. And I always thought that was really cool. Mutants and Masterminds is a system that I've seen used quite well to branch out from the superhero, supervillain genre into many, many other parts of the gaming space. On the flip side, very rarely have I seen Dungeons & Dragons effectively employed anywhere outside of the fantasy realm. That's partly because most of the system is geared around fantasy-style combat, and there's less emphasis put on the other sorts of social or intrigue or stealth options uh, or the other types of combat, as it were, that are important in other genres where swinging a sword and uh, slinging a spell isn't necessarily the bread and butter. I think Fate is a good example of that. It does have rules for sword slinging and gunfighting, but it also has rules for social and intrigue-type interactions. So, and because it's so rules-light, it can be used in so many different ways, whereas Dungeons & Dragons, it's basically designed to do one thing. Yeah, you have probably several different settings that you can use those rules in, but at the end, it's still swords, magic, dragons, dungeons, those types of ideas. So it's not a very flexible system in terms of genre. Tiffany Corda says, and ironically, D&D is the one that people try to hack the most. And yeah, you're right, but that also comes from D&D being the most popular role-playing system of all time. So it kind of makes sense that people would try to adapt those rules to different genres, even though the rules aren't really flexible enough for those other genres. Yeah, there's enough difficulty people have with trying to create homebrew classes or races or monsters or what have you in D&D and keep them balanced to the original game. Uh, Heck, the original game, you know, we can argue whether or not it's balanced enough as it is, but uh, trying to extend the rules of D&D out of the space for which is designed, and and I just haven't seen it work well at all. I mean, the basics of gunplay are not terribly bad because you already have things like fireballs, which are relatively massive area effect spells that you can kind of pattern you off of and use as a, a template for what the level of capability you might see. And you have archery from a uh, type of precision type range combat. Uh, so there's, there are some things you can do, but once you get out of the realm of personal combat into uh, vehicles or spaceships or what have you, it's going to break down pretty quickly. All right. I think we have time for just a couple more questions before we wrap up for the evening. I knew the next question was going to be about Grok. It never fails, does it? (laughs) So Chimi asks, what would Grok do if he met his gender-swapped clone? I imagine they'd get along pretty well. Although it depends on if one of them has their favorite sword and the other one doesn't, that might cause some issues. But, yeah, like Jojo Lagger says, they'll probably just team up and stomp some dwarfs. 
I think the bigger question is, what does Grok drink after he's done stomping dwarves? <laughs> Chimi has a very good answer to that question. He's never done stomping dwarves. The ale he looted from the dwarves. I like that answer a lot, actually. So I'm going to go with that. He's going to take the ale from the dwarves he stomped and drink that. Because nothing is sweeter than the ale of your enemies. Speaking of Grok, I have something that I would like to share with everybody. I took the time to make a character sheet for Grok the Dwarf Stomper. Because people wanted it. And so it exists. So, I will post it here. And for those of you listening to the recording, that link will be available in the relevant links section. So, you will notice, Grok the Dwarf Stomper is a level 20 Orc Barbarian. I used D&D 5th Edition, in case anyone is curious, because that's my favorite system right now. Some features of note, he has 25 strength, 9 intelligence, a athletics skill check of plus 13, and plenty of... Oh, and his favorite sword is featured. I don't remember what magical enchantments it has off the top of my head. Jojo Lager asks, why did I not use Mythweaver sheets for Grok the Dwarf Stomper? And I intend to put it on Mythweavers soon-ish. Yeah, yeah, I'll put it on... I can do that. I can convert it over to Mythweavers tomorrow and then link directly to the sheet. That would be fun. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at Chimi's comment. I li- Chimi says, I like how he has land vehicles. Multiple, undescribed land vehicles. Yes, yes he does. It's fantastic. All right, I think we have time for one or two more questions before we wrap up for the evening. Wandering Bishop poses a question to everybody. Has anyone on the site ever tried running Spelljammer? I've heard of that system, but I've never actually used it. In fact, I seem to recall that I've recently seen it under discussion in the Players of Older D&D and Clones thread. Uh, where someone was considering whether or not to run Spelljammer, and there was some discussion of whether it was uh, too silly uh, or campy, perhaps might be the better word, for the uh, the sorts of uh, serious gamers that we have on our site. Okay, so today I'm learning that Spelljammer is a setting, so thank you for that. The Unspeakable says it's D&D 2nd Edition in space! And that, I mean, I love... Second edition, don't get me wrong, but that sounds kind of odd, even for second edition. There's the relevant thread for the discussion. It is definitely odd. Uh, I seem to recall gun-wielding hippopotami. I'm intrigued. Tell me more. Yeah, GIF, that's the name for the race. They were uh, they were a very interesting little combination there. And there were... Uh, Space crystals or something and had to do with, uh, astro navigation. Melding astrophysics and, and D&D was kind of one of those marriages made in hell. Huh. Yeah, I could see how that would be like that. Probably the most common reason people wanted to use Spelljammer is because it provided a metaphysical way to link the various D&D settings to each other so that you could have characters meet up from Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and Ravenloft and Mistara, wherever wherever you wanted them to come from, they could all find their way to uh, a Spelljammer setting. 
Not that most barbarians in their furkinis were particularly comfortable on a spaceship being attacked by a bunch of uh, ithalids, but you could do it if you wanted. I appreciate the flexibility of the se- of the setting, at least. We're not allowed to say Mind Flare. It's uh, not been released to the SRD. It's not open source. <laughs> squid thingy? Uh, squid person? Davy Jones from the Pirates of the Caribbean? All right, we have time for one more question. So who has our last question of the evening? Jimmy asks, what's up with myconids? The answer is, if you had consumed as many mushrooms as the creators of D&D did back in the day, you would have living mushrooms in your setting too. I don't think I can top that answer. So with that, we will just move on to the outro. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat, as always. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Mordai tonight. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.